More than that, it looks like. I remember having a, a, a dinner time conversation with a, a, a bit of a Christian intellectual, and he was lamenting this melody. You know, he thought, I want the old, you know, parade march melody. And I told him that his was a post-millennial rendering of that song, and this was a amillennial rendering of it. I love it. I'm grateful for, to the musicians for doing it. So we're going to keep pressing in the Gospel of Luke uh, this morning, wrapping up the 13th chapter. And uh, here's the way I want to introduce it. Uh, in, at our prayer meetings on Thursday mornings, we are using that little uh, devotional guide that is for sale uh, in, the, uh, in chapter and verse. It's called Be Thou My Vision. And it's a, an outline, a map of daily worship. And so, it, you know, it just kind of goes along the strand of a worship service. And, uh, and this, of course, has been done in the Anglican Church uh, for years and years. And the, and the uh, and Roman Catholic Church has daily worship as well. Uh, but this has kind of got a Reformed flavor to it, completely Reformed. The guy's an Orthodox Presbyterian minister, and he captures some of the best of uh, the Book of Common Prayer and, and other Reformed um, resources, but what we do is we start off uh, with a call to worship and a, and a prayer of thanksgiving, and then we, we look at that and we make comments on it, and then we pray uh, a prayer of thank you know, spontaneously, uh, prayers of thanksgiving, understanding that it's foundational, uh, and it's a discipline, really. It's hard to worship the Lord and be thankful. Uh, usually when you pray, you want to make a beeline to the things you need you know, to the things you want. And it's hard to kind of stop and say, first, uh, we're going to praise the Lord. And then there's a confession of sin, uh, reading of the law, confession of sin, words of absolution or pardon. Uh, and then we read a creed. And, and I'll have to say that this has been new for me uh, to discipline myself uh, in the context of this group of people that we gather together and pray to recite a creed. But we don't just recite the creed, we ask the question, how should we pray in light of this creed? And what we usually do, and then we read a catechism uh, passage as well, and the way that we pray is we pray that the truths in the creeds and the truths in the catechisms might be woven into the fabric of our lives and woven into the fabric of the lives of all of you as well. So we pray for the church. But uh, this past Thursday, we read a, a section of the Athanasian Creed. I don't know if you've ever heard of this creed. Uh, it's kind of a new one to me. I know the Nicene Creed, the, Apost the Apostles' Creed. But this thing's so long that you only do a third of it uh, a day until you get to the 31st day of the month, and then they slam you with the whole thing. But this week, we read, uh, whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith, anyone meaning universal, through the ages, Christian faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. And then it's, uh, it gets into the substance of it. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. None in this Trinity is before or after. None is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, the unity and Trinity, the Trinity and unity is to be worshipped. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. And then we pray. And, and you really do need to pray to begin to apprehend some of that stuff. And it's good to kind of to try to go deep on a daily basis with what, what is this stuff that we readily profess. You know, Christianity in the public view in the United States in the 21st century is a relatively shallow endeavor. You know, it's Jesus loves me, why wouldn't he? You know, I'm on my way to heaven uh, because he's gracious and I'm a pretty good guy. And we, we, can, we can sink into that pretty readily. You know, even if you have an earnest, robust uh, theological understanding of the nature of sin, it's easy to kind of sink into an I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay and headed to heaven kind of American civil religion. And so it's good to kind of take a step back and kind of say, wait a minute, let's, let's think a little bit more deeply about the incarnation. Let's think a little bit more deeply about the hypostatic union. You ever heard those words? That's, that's your $50 word of the day, hypostatic. You know, but what the hypostatic union refers to is the fact that Jesus was both God and man all the time, completely, truly, and neither one of those in any way impeding the other. His humanity is not compromised by his also being divine. His deity is not compromised by his also being human. Both of those things are held hypostatically together. And it's a wonder, and it's a mystery, and it is a glory, and it will take your breath away. Uh, We all have acquaintances, some close friends, some children, who have walked away from the faith. And and my thought in thinking through and praying through the incarnation is anyone who would walk away from the faith didn't understand this. Now, that's a long-winded introduction uh, to say that we're going to get into the heart of Jesus today. And, And as we do that, reading this passage, I want us to get a sense of the of the overwhelming nature of it. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the one who is eternally begotten of the Father. This is the one who is true God, uh, true man, both held together. And to see Jesus in those terms as he interacts as a human being is really to unsettle you a little bit, uh, but it also is such that takes the breath away. And so um, it is good for the church always to take a deep dive into who Jesus is and to watch him in action. Um, you know, we always, as, as uh, Reformed Presbyterian ministers, uh, try to make our way back uh, to the Gospels. 
uh, wherever we're preaching, if we're in Genesis, if we're in a prophet, or uh, even in, you know, the Proverbs or the Song of Solomon. Uh, but what a privilege and a treasure it is when we have this immediate access right here in the Gospels to the words that Jesus said and to an event uh, in his life. So uh, I'll just remind you that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, back in chapter 9, um, when we started this, we noticed his turn. Uh, chapter nine fifty one. when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face uh, to go to Jerusalem. And then just last week, that was reiterated uh, in verse 22 of chapter 13, uh, he went on his way through the towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So that's the section of Luke that we're in. That's the way Luke has structured it. Uh, it hit me last week as uh, Tim was preaching uh, that passage that uh, there is a certain severity uh, to Jesus' interactions in this chapter. Uh, I had preached earlier at the first part of the chapter where uh, Jesus says, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And then uh, in the passage after that where Jesus turns to those worshiping in the synagogue and says, you hypocrites, uh, in their violation of the Sabbath or at least the spirit of the Sabbath. And then the passage last week, um, Jesus was anticipating the judgment when he will say, depart from me, you workers of evil. So there's a certain severity of disposition toward those who are not connected to Jesus, not connected to his ways, not connected to his words, and you might uh, have the assumption that Jesus is uh, angry towards them, upset towards them, impatient towards them. If I ever tell you, you must repent, uh, you have to watch out for the tone of my voice and what was really in my heart as I was doing it. Um, but again, Jesus is something completely different, and we want to pay uh, very close attention to that this morning. You know, asking the question again, what is the disposition of the Son of God uh, towards those who don't believe, towards those who have set themselves up against him? So with that, I'm going to read this passage. This is the Word of God starting in verse 31. At that very hour... Some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the Word of God, and let's dig into it a little bit. Uh, the Pharisees, as we know, are generally not on friendly terms with Jesus. Luke's told us back in chapter 11 that they are pressing him hard, provoking him, lying in wait for him uh, to catch him in something that he might say. Uh, they likely do not have his best interests at heart 
when they tell him to leave. They're, they're emphatic about it. Uh, the King James has a great, uh, a little bit more literal translation of what's going on in the Greek because there are two verbs there. Uh, when it says, go out and get thee hence, uh, they're pushing Jesus away. But there, there actually isn't a whole lot of indication of ill intent here. And it is good to remember, and you'll see it next week when we get into chapter 14, uh, that Jesus is still on speaking terms with a lot of Pharisees. Uh, he's still having dinner at their homes. And uh, it may well be that there's this curious uh, combination of, of uh, instincts uh, that are in, uh, motivating the Pharisees to come and say, look, we, we don't want Herod to kill you, uh, so get out of here. The Pharisees are not uh, all bad. Uh, maybe some of them really do have uh, the idea that they want Jesus to be preserved. Uh, Herod, as you may remember, is a bad hombre. Uh, we might call him a bad dude these days. Uh, his threat is real. He's already executed John the Baptist. We read about that in chapter 9. Uh, back in chapter 3, when John the Baptist was preaching, uh, Luke tells us that uh, Herod, uh, the Tetrarch, had been reproved by John the Baptist for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. Uh, so Herod is, is discussed here, is mentioned here as being thoroughly evil. Uh, Jesus responds in an interesting way. He says, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow on the third day. I finish my course. And then he goes on and talks about today and tomorrow the day following again. Um, but he calls him a fox. Now, or, ordinarily we think of foxes as being crafty. Uh, but that, that probably is not what they would have thought of foxes. Um, foxes were in that culture um, pests. And uh, one of the paraphrases that I read uh, said that uh, Jesus is calling uh, Herod a malicious varmint in the Lord's field, a murderer of God's people and a would-be disruptor of God's economy. So this is the interesting thing that's going on uh, with Jesus and his determination to get to Jerusalem uh, the Pharisees think they're doing him a favor, say, get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. Jesus knows full well who's going to kill him. He knows how it needs to take place. So it's interesting that he speaks, to G speaks of Herod derisively. And probably the only place in the whole New Testament where uh, Jesus treats someone derisively. Uh, Jesus says, in essence, I'm going to keep to my own schedule because my purposes are aligned with God's purposes. Just as Pilate has no real power to save Jesus, remember that? When Pilate meets Jesus and questions him, don't you realize that I have the ability, the power to let you go? And, and Jesus said to him, you have no power. Uh, just as Pilate has no real power to save Jesus, so Herod has no power to kill him. Uh, Jesus' purposes are aligned with God's, and he's sure of that. And, uh, and if it is the case that your purposes are aligned with God, then most of the time uh, you're going to have a measure of confidence uh, in your course. And then Jesus uses a word that I really enjoy in the Gospel of Luke. 
and, the, and the word is literally translated, it is necessary. Now, it gets truncated a good bit uh, when you have to make, make your way into English. And here, uh, it's indicated by the word must in verse 33. Uh, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. Uh, this word, it's spelled D-E-I, it's pronounced day, um, occurs 15 times in the Gospel of Luke. And every time, I think every time, it has to do uh, with the divine will, with divine necessity. It is, ne- it is necessary in the economy of God. It is necessary according to God's will uh, that this is what takes place. So uh, Jesus used the word as a child uh, when he said, I must be in my father's house. And when the disciples were trying to dissuade him and direct his energies, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in the other towns and villages. And this is, of course, the word that he used earlier uh, three times when he said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. There are other places where it's a little bit more delightful. Uh, He says to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must uh, stay at your house today. And we'll get to, you know, I think one of the most delightful uh, uh, occurrences of the word in Luke 15 when we get there. Uh, But what it indicates here is this. Jesus is fiercely determined to get to Jerusalem. Now, again, he knows that that's where God's directing him. He knows that that's what God's purposes are. But this is a fierce determination that I think it's good for us to understand frightens the people who see it. I think he's acting out a prophecy. He's fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 50. Verse 7 there says, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced, therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Mark 7 explains that directly. Uh, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. This is the situation we're in here in Luke. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. There is something in the disciples' apprehension of Jesus' determination that strikes fear in their hearts. What is he doing? What is his mindset? Uh, How can he slough off Uh, this threat of Herod and treat it as of no account uh, as he is intending to get to Jerusalem uh, knowing what's going to take place there. And again, I want us to feel the drama of this, feel the tension of it, that Jesus as God incarnate is heading up to the city that kills the prophets. Jesus knows Herod is not the one who's going to kill Jesus. It's that city that is going to kill him. He said it's impossible, it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. The city stones the prophets, or kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. You know, stoning in the Old Testament had particularly to do with those who had blasphemed. They stone the prophets, the others who are sent 
uh, to speak the word of the Lord in Jerusalem. Uh, what else are they going to do to Jesus? And again, his face is set like flint. That's where he's going. Uh, Herod didn't have the power. He was a puppet of Rome. Uh, the true leaders of the Jewish community were on the Sanhedrin, uh, the temple council, and they are waiting for Jesus. They're waiting for him to show up. And again, they're already conspiring and thinking about what they're going to do when they finally get a hold of him. Jerusalem, as Jesus cries out, is really a cipher for Israel. It represents uh, the decided will of the leaders of the people of God. It represents the, the accumulated dispositions of the leaders, the ones who form the culture. And that's important for us to understand that these guys were in control and they were not going to be threatened. That status quo resists change and it resists the words of the prophets. Uh, James Davis and Hunter wrote an interesting book several years ago called To Change the World. I don't know if you ever saw this. The opening part of the book, interestingly, uh, cataloged, you know, every Christian organization in the United States, more or less, but all the Christian colleges, the Christian, uh, the parachurch organizations, you know, different uh, entities, and even denominations if they wrote uh, statements of purpose and mission. And, and he said in that that almost every one of them said, uh, it is our hope, our mission to change the world. And that's how he titled the book. And then the rest of the book is, uh, you know, a little bit of a not so fast, my friend. Uh, because he asks the question, what does it take to change the world? You know, what does it take to change the status quo? You know, how do you, how do you actually get into the halls of power and effect a change? And he talked about, you know, the, the, um, you know, the folly, and, you know, not to be too critical, but, you know, the, the lack of wisdom in the general Christian assumption, you know, that we could change the world by planting more churches, we could change the world by uh, doing more aggressive evangelism, we could change the world by uh, electing political leaders who uh, echoed the faith. And, uh, and he pointed out, you know, and he's a sociologist, so he did a pretty good job saying that that actually doesn't work. And he says, what, what you are going to have to do if you want to change the world is you're going to have to penetrate the halls of power. And he lists three halls of power. I'm saying too much about this book already. But uh, he said, you know, we are, the halls of power in our contemporary culture are academia, um, the media, and the entertainment industry. That's where culture is formed. And if you want to arrest that, you're going to have to get into it. And he said, but here's the deal. None of those are going to invite you in, and none of those are going to let you in. And you're going to have to go to war to take these things on. Well, in some ways, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem are the formers of culture. You know, they're the combination of the media, academia, and Hollywood all wrapped up in one. And they're calling the shots. And as Jesus comes and gives a word to them that is the true word, that is God's word, they're not going to treat it kindly. Now, this leads us to the main point of the passage in my opinion. How would you expect Jesus to be disposed toward those who are intent to kill him? He's called Herod a fox. 
treating him somewhat derisively, called him a varmint. Well, I think you you get a little bit of the heart of Jesus, and so you get a little bit of the heart of God. And this this is hard stuff. I mean, you get into deep philosophical kinds of things here that that can really be rich and beneficial and good. I participated in a theological exam this week of a young man coming to be ordained in the Low Country Presbytery where I still have my membership. And uh, he wrote his uh, theological paper on uh, a, a bit of an arcane doctrine called the impassibility of God. And the impassibility of God has to do with God being without passion and that's a long conversation for another day. And I completely agree with it, and I treat it as a dear doctrine. But here Jesus, in his humanity, is provoked not to wrath toward the city that intends to kill him, but he's brokenhearted over it. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And you know how these words double up. I think you've probably heard of this before. This is kind of Absalom, O Absalom, where you can hear the devastation of David's soul that his son has betrayed him. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? The, the verb is actually the same verb in Greek as in verse 31. Herod wants to kill you. And then Jesus comes around to what he wants. And he wants to gather the children of Israel together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But then again, the same verb appears. That is not what Jerusalem wants. I want us to notice, above all else this morning, the emotional complexity of the Son of God and his humanity. He's disdainful of Herod. He's relentless in his embracing God's purposes. He's willing to shut the door on evildoers. He's full of emotional yearning for Jerusalem. He's brokenhearted over the city that will betray him, torture him, and put him to death. He longs for their repentance and faithfulness, and he has done so for a long time. And again, this is one of the deep mysteries of the hypostatic union. You don't often think of God yearning. But here is a yearning, a yearning for Jerusalem. And you can extend that out to say it's a yearning for carriage lane. It's a yearning for you yourself. There is a yearning. How, How I long, how I wish. How often I would have gathered you and brought you under my wing like a hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing. You weren't willing. I mean, maybe you were completely willful, like a disobedient child. Maybe you're just distracted. And, and, you, and you're not paying attention to the way that Jesus is speaking to you and calling to you. And saying, I would gather you 
under my wing as a hen gathers her chicks. And the last verse is just, whew, behold, your house is forsaken. I've often thought that we don't appreciate the monumental quality of that parable of the vineyard uh, in Isaiah that I think gets played out very much in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard uh, where the vineyard keepers, you know, keep resisting the landowner's request to receive his rent. And at the end, they decide that, uh, you know, what would really be best is we'll never hear from this guy again if we murder his son. And Jesus poses the question, what do you think the landowner is going to do to those folks? And it says at the end of that parable that the Pharisees were furious because he knew he was telling the parable about them. But if God would take that vineyard and give it to someone else, uh, he will surely, well, the way it's described in in New Testament terms in the book of Revelation, he is surely willing to withdraw the lampstand. And here he says, behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, I don't... I might be making a mountain of a molehill, but I don't think I am. Um, it's important to, to note the verb. Jesus uses the verb to see. Uh, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You cannot see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You don't see Jesus without faith, without bowing the knee. This is the great conundrum for non-Christians. You know, I don't see Jesus, so I need proof. And if I can get enough proof, if it can be proven to my sensibilities that Jesus is who he says he is, then I'll bow the knee. But the Bible inverts that. You don't know who he is until you bow the knee. You can't see him until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The residents of Jerusalem will not see him until they welcome him who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's reminiscent, actually, of another passage early in Luke. There's this guy, Simeon. I don't know if you remember him. I had a friend who wrote a song, and one of the verses was about Simeon, so he, he looms large, almost a heroic quality. But he was an old man who had been told Uh, that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord's redemption. I'll read to you from Luke chapter 2. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory 
uh, to your people Israel. Uh, that song that I was telling you about, it, it explores a little bit of the emotional relief and delight and, and the overwhelming sense that Simeon had that he had seen the Lord's redemption. And of course, it was supernaturally revealed to him when he saw the baby Jesus. Uh, but then he cries out and just gives this great prayer that has been understood in the life of the church ever since. I don't know if you know this. This is a, uh, a famous episode. It's called the Nunc Dimittis. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, now, uh, you know, let your servant depart in peace. Um, so this is Jesus. I mean, this is all I got to say this morning. There's not a whole lot more to it. You know, then I'm, I want you to stop and take a look at this later on during the day, you know, later on during the week, and ask God to reveal to you the depth of the heart of Jesus for your soul. And how much he longs over you as he longed over Jerusalem. Don't doubt that. You know, the, the, the devil, as we know, is seeking to thwart that. Uh, the devil is persistently slandering God before you and saying that he's not really all that interested in you. Uh, you might slander him and say he's pretty disgusted with you. And so as he's slandering God, he's also accusing you and dragging you into the dirt. Uh, but here you have Jesus going to the city that's going to execute him. And his yearning for them. You know, when he finally is on his way to the cross, it's another fascinating passage. You know, the professional wailers are out wailing. And he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourself. The yearning is still there. So if you have any doubts, again, I want you to come. If you're not a Christian... Please don't doubt the Lord's yearning for you and his disposition to bless you and to save you and to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. If you are a Christian, if you're anything like me, those doubts riddle your life up, down, and inside and out so that you become half-hearted in your faith and you become kind of grumpy and you might become a little spiteful and a little hateful. It's because you've forgotten the disposition of the Lord toward you. So we read it in Hebrews that we come to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Right? That's what we're doing. We come to him. He, he can be adored as one who is tenaciously and relentlessly faithful to his calling. We can be in awe of that. He may be trusted as one who is tender-hearted and compassionate to those who struggle. He can be called upon because he is able to sympathize and is capable of providing whatever is necessary for you in whatever you're struggling. And he may and should be thanked for all his provision, for his tenacity in accomplishing our redemption. He really did it. He fought through everything in order to accomplish our redemption. And that, my friends, my brothers and sisters, is good news. It's good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, every single problem that we have uh, has as a large portion of it our inability to believe this. 
our inability to thwart the accusations of the devil and entrust ourselves entirely to you and to your mercy, uh, which is uh, demonstrated, and not only demonstrated, but it is accomplished uh, in Jesus himself. So I simply pray that as we sing this last song, uh, as we go out to our Sunday afternoon, beautiful as it is, uh, that you would give us the Holy Spirit that we might trust you more and that we might lay aside the sin that so easily entangles, uh, that we might um, amend our lives, uh, that we might know uh, the fruit of the Spirit being born up in us somewhat mysteriously. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand.